This morning we're going to look again at this uh, narrative in 2 Kings of the prophet Elisha. Elisha was the prophet who succeeded Elijah. And uh, it's really an amazing, both, both groups of narratives, both the, the uh, Elijah uh, string of narratives and the Elisha follow-up narratives are, are truly remarkable. So we're going to look at uh, uh, the Elisha narrative. We're going to look at chapter 5 this morning. And it's printed in your bulletin if you don't have your Bible. If you do, we'll read the first uh, 19 verses or so. Uh, actually, I think I'll just read to, uh, yeah, probably up to 19. But uh, follow along there in your bulletin, or if you uh, have a Bible, follow along, starting in verse 1. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Israel, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Syria, to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, you know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure this man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of the house of Elijah, Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abna and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. 
Then he returned to the man of God and he and all his company and he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but, the, but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Elisha said to him, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. That's a long reading and I, I I'm sorry, but you really need to get the whole picture of what's going on here. You know, last week we looked at this story in 2 Kings uh, of the she-bears, these female bears that come out and kill 43 uh, young children, young boys, who are mocking the prophet Elisha. And everybody hates that story, including me. I don't like that story because, frankly, I don't understand what, you know, is going on. I tried to explain some of it last week, but it's... It's still perplexing. What is going on? These bears come and kill children. But everybody loves Naaman. They even made a television show about it. Okay, never mind. Didn't any of you ever watch Everybody Loves Raymond? Okay. Well, this was a television show in Israel back in the day. Everybody loves Naaman because we all love this story. This is a great story. This is a happy story. And it's it's just full of color and wonder and great stuff. So everybody loves Naaman. So let's look at the story and learn that, first of all, we're going to have to look at the contrast. To understand it, you have to see the contrasts that are going on. The author's brilliant. He's writing this and he's... He's just laying out a magnificent narrative. Like, I don't know who wrote Kings, the first and second book of Kings, but whoever they were, they were great authors. And they put together some amazing stories. And so let's look at the contrast. Secondly, we'll look at the whole idea of expectations, particularly unmet expectations. And finally, we'll look at these muddy waters of the River Jordan, which I think is the key, really, to understanding uh, this story. So what about the contrasts that are here? Look at your scriptures, and you'll notice uh, that there's Naaman, this great general, this commander of the army of Syria, who is contrasted with this little girl. And, and the word really means a little girl. She was a child that had been stolen from her family, kidnapped during one of the raids that the Syrian army probably led under this general Naaman. Uh, and she was taken away uh, to the house of Naaman, became a servant to his wife, to Naaman's wife. And there's a contrast right away. The commander, Naaman is characterized as the commander Uh, of the army, the king of Syria, a great man, look at the language, in high favor with his Lord, 
by him, this is interesting, by Naaman, God had given them victory over Israel, over his own people. Very interesting. He was a mighty man of valor, but a leper. He was a leper. and I don't have to explain to you how horrible leprosy was in that world and continues to be a horrible disease even to this day. On the other hand, you've got this great general, this great commander, an honorable man, and far as we know, so far he's a good character. On the other side, this little girl, a child probably, maybe pre-teenager, we don't know, maybe she was a teenager. They had carried her off and she's now a slave. She doesn't even have, notice in the narrative, she didn't even have a name. She's just a person, a child. Over against this man. He has leprosy, but what does she have? She has great faith. He has power. He has riches. He has honor. All she has is faith. Look what she says. Would that my Lord were, a, were with the prophet in Israel. He would cure your leprosy. What an amazing little gal this must have been. To be a slave in Naaman's house. Slave to his wife. And yet she had the, uh, the ability in her, in her... And really it's very kind. She's saying, wouldn't it be wonderful if you were just with this prophet... Your leprosy uh, could be healed. Look at the second contrast. This one is kind of comical. And I think the the authors who wrote these stories, they were trying to be a little bit humorous. So look at it. Uh, In verse 6, this is the king of Israel being contrasted with the prophet Elisha. He sends this letter. The uh, king of Syria sends a letter to the king of Israel. These were sworn enemies, but evidently there was some peace going on at the time. And so he writes a letter. This is those of you that understand diplomacy and, you know, all this uh, uh, inter-co- inter-country relationships. The king of one nation sends a king of another na- uh, nation a letter introducing his servant. And here I want you to do for him. And the letter says to the king of Israel, from the king of Syria, I've sent you Naaman, my servant, my commander. Cure his leprosy. Now, the king of Syria doesn't understand all this stuff about prophet, who the prophet is. He probably could care less who Elisha was. But king to king, I'm asking you to do something for me. Here's my letter of introduction. I want you to cure uh, my servant. And the king of Israel tears his clothes because he thinks the king of Syria is picking a fight with him. He knows he can't cure the leprosy. And he says, look, he's just just trying to pick a fight with me. He's seeking a quarrel with me. And then the the narrator comes in and he says, Elisha, Elisha probably had spies in the court. You know, there's a lot of intrigue in the Bible and you only only get the surface. You don't really get down, but... Imagine, in these courts, these kings, there were all kinds of spies and people, and Elisha most certainly had somebody in there watching what was going on, and he heard back that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. And so he sends the king of Israel a message. And he says, why have you torn your clothes? 
I don't know if you all see the humor in it. But he's, he's, why have you torn your clothes? As if that's going to do any good. What's wrong with you? Send him to me. Send him to me. And you'll see that there's a prophet in Israel. You got the little girl and you got the prophet Elisha full of faith. And you have Naaman who's kind of hopeful. You don't know. We're not sure where he is yet. But the king of Israel is an abominable failure. And if you read your Bible, you find out that these kings were abominably failing. They just would not do uh, what they were, even the slightest bit of faith. And of course, from where we are, we know that those are sending out messages that we're to anticipate what? We're supposed to anticipate a king, a king that will say to Naaman and to the king of Syria, yes, send your leper to me. Bring your leprosy to me. The king of Israel should say, send your leprosy here because we do have a God who will clean, make clean your uncleanness. A faithless, cowardly king, a faithful prophet. And then we've got this contrast between the Jordan River and Abana and Farpart. These were rivers in Damascus or in Syria. Naaman asks a good question. Aren't they better than the Jordan River? Aren't these two better? And actually they are. If you go and you look on the, you know, the, the, the masters of the universe have created Google for a reason. And if you Google uh, Abana or Farpar, or if you do what I did and, and just look in any good commentary, they will tell you that those rivers in, the, in, in Syria were formed by the melting snow from Mount Hermon. And that the water in those beautiful rivers was rushing, tumbling, cool, clear, snow melt. Over against the Jordan. Now, I have not been to the Middle East. My family came and promised that we would never go back. And so I've never been back, and I don't know, maybe some of you have been. But if you've gone to, the, to Israel, then you know there are parts of the Jordan, and again, uh, you can look on Google or whatever. I just read a commentary because I'm extremely spiritual. And anyway, Jordan, the Jordan River is what? It's leakage from the Sea of Galilee. It's just the Sea of Galilee leaking into the Jordan River. And where does it end up, by the way? The Dead Sea. I mean, there's really nothing remarkable. Now, there may be portions, and I've seen some pictures on the internet, of some really beautiful places along Jordan. Maybe some of you have been there and actually been rebaptized in the Jordan River. Aren't you special? But it's not anything to compare with Abana and Far Park. And he asked this question. And you know, it's really not about beauty, is it? It's not about properties. Uh, as we talked about in Sunday, Gary did such a good job in Sunday school talking about the, the properties of God and the, 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 the way the Trinity interacts with each other. It's not about that. The properties, it's not about that. It's about which river 
has power. Not in and of itself, but which one is the instrument by which God will cure leprosy? Is it by the properties of cool, clean, rushing water? Or could it possibly be a tepid and lethargic stream that just leaks out of the the Sea of Galilee? Which is it? Amazing. Remember when we were in the parables, we were talking about how Jesus comes and, and tells all these parables, speaks all of these amazing kingdom parables. And what we learn is the key to understanding parables is the parable of the sower and the seed. So the king comes, the kingdom of God comes, not with a warrior, not with armies, not with power, not with might, but he comes as a sower of seed. And folks, let me be very honest with you. If you don't get this and you don't plug it into your life, and if you don't live it every single day, understanding that God's ways are often the weakest ways, the ways that we won't expect, the ways that are perplexing, like the whole the, the title of this series, the paradoxes of faith. If you don't get that, then Christianity really honestly just doesn't make a lot of sense. It would be much better to go into some religion that says power and might and strength or even some a sect of Christianity. There are some out there today that says it's all about power. It's all about money. It's all about taking over. It's all about getting into government and recreating the earth in our image. And if you, if you do that, you're going to be frustrated forever with Christianity. On the other hand, if you see the beauty of weakness, if you see the beauty of the cross, and specifically the cross, we'll get to this in a minute, the the whole world starts to look different. You start to look through a different lens at everything around, and things do make sense. Naaman is hopeful. He has high expectations. It says that he told his Lord, this little girl has said this, and the the king says, hey, I'll write you a letter, and he gets all his money. And by the way, if you again, if you go and look at a commentary or you Google this amount of money, it's lots of money. It was a fortune of money. And he went with troops, he went with his army, he went with an entourage, and they go to the prophet's house with all of these goods. He's had high expectations. And what happens? He's met there at the front door. He's got all his entourage. He's got all his power, all his might, his army. In other words, he's a threat. He didn't just come, you know, holding up a white flag and saying, I surrender. No, he came with his troops, with his money, with his servants. He came with everything. He brought the whole thing to Elisha's door. And what does Elisha do? What is the response of the prophet? For all we know, he didn't get, even get up out of his chair. He just pointed to his servant, Gehazi, and says, go out there and tell him thus and so. So out comes a servant. Get the picture. Out of the door comes a servant, not the prophet. And the servant walks up and he says, you know, Elisha says, go down to the Jordan River over here and dip yourself in it seven times, and you'll be clean. Name, look at verses 11 and 12. His, his idea 
of what was going to happen are shattered. And he goes away in a rage. It actually says he went off. He left there. He was so mad. He just got, he got his whole guys together and they galloped away and he's at the head in his, in his chariot or whatever and he's just raging mad. His face is red and he's, you know, probably slapping people. I don't know. That's not in your Bible. I'm just making it up. All for color. And again, we see some comedy here. The, the writers are brilliant. You know, I don't know. When you read your Bible, I hope you read it this way. Look for, look for the humanity that these people are putting into this. It's not just a, a newspaper article saying this and that and the house caught fire and then the police came and they put the fire out and the firemen came and they rescued a cat. You know, it's not like that. And you hear the conversation. Now you're in Naaman's little tent and he's all mad, you know, and he's raging about it. He's, I thought he would come out. I thought he would call upon the name of the Lord and do all the things that those ancient prophets would do. I thought he'd call him and I thought he'd wave his hand over him. What does that sound like? Doesn't it sound like some of the hucksters in Christianity today that get up on these stages? Have you ever seen that? No? Y'all just don't watch enough TV. You don't know who Raymond is? And there's these hucksters. They get on television. I'm not afraid to call them hucksters. They're false prophets. They're liars, liars, pants on fire. And they get on TV and they, they have these huge crusades and they heal people and all that and nobody's ever healed. It's all a put on. And if you say, how do you know that? I know because I have been in those things and seen it. I've actually been behind the scenes. I've heard them talk. I'll be happy to share with you in private. I don't want it to be out there in public. But I've seen it. I was part of it. That doesn't mean that God doesn't heal. He heals. But in a show, waving His hands and calling and shouting and everybody's hysterical and rolling on the ground, if you think that's Christianity, you're sorely mistaken. That's not what we see in the Bible. And he says, I thought he would come out. I thought he would do all these things. You know, the Apostle Paul said this, and you all are familiar with this passage. God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, weak to shame the strong, low and despised, so no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, being in power, having power, having money, has never, ever, served the church well. Never. There's not a period in church history where the church had power and money and influence where it has done okay with that. It has always corrupted us from the inside out. Israel was the same, same way. They built the temple, the streets, uh, according to the, 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 the narrative, uh, the streets were literally paved with gold in Solomon's day. Silver, it says silver was nothing. They just threw it out in the trash because it was so worthless because they were so rich and so powerful and so they had ships going all over the world bringing riches and the whole universe was spinning around Jerusalem and Solomon and his temple and Solomon and his court. And what did it do? It corrupted them. And the way for us, the paradox, folks, of our faith 
is it is not always the strong. It is not always the powerful. And I know it's not a popular message. In America, we have this idea, I can do anything. When you go to school, from the time you start first grade or kindergarten or even, who knows now because kids start right away in school, till the time you graduate, at every commencement, high school, college, what do they say? You can do anything you want. You can be anything you want. You know, I want to dunk a basketball with all my heart. And I will never dunk a basketball unless somebody gets a crane and lifts me up. I mean, we overstate things. We oversay. We overpromise. We underperform. And this is a great danger. How do we deal with unmet expectations? That's what's going on here. And I I will say this before we finish. Probably the greatest challenge to our faith is unmet expectations. I prayed, and what happened? What happened? Nothing! And then we start trying to figure out, well, what's going on? And then, or, or, you know what? I got married. I went into this marriage. I thought it was going to be like this. I joined this church. I thought this church would be the answer to all my problems. Believe me. What about unmet expectations? Have you ever been on a blind date? Anybody? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> unmet expectations. Have you ever bought a new car? Anybody buy? Don't raise your hand. Anyone bought a new car? Yeah, two weeks after you buy the car, what do you have? It's called buyer's remorse, right? Have any of you ever gotten a puppy? I mean, the puppies come with so much promise. <laughs> and then they eat, they eat the furniture, right? Or they, they, or they do terrible things right there in the middle of the floor and you go, ah! Unmet expectations. And it's not that we should have low expectations. Naaman certainly didn't have low expectations. He had high expectations. But Naaman is like us. And so let's look at this final, final point. The muddy waters. And I hope this will touch you the way it did me. I, I spent all week just thinking about it relentlessly. The muddy water of Jordan. In verse 13 and 14, they're off and his servants come to him and they say, it's a great thing this prophet has said to you. He hasn't asked you to do anything hard. He hasn't asked you to jump through any hoops. He doesn't even want your money. He just says, go down here to this river and wash. He doesn't even say, travel all the way back to uh, Abana and Farpar. He doesn't even say that. He just go down here to this muddy river And go bathe. Isn't that a great thing? By the question, his servants who are wiser than this great commander are opening his presuppositions about what is really before him. Which I think the Bible does to us constantly. It asks us, just like I do, on Sunday, right after the sermon, I say, will you trust him? This is what it's saying. Will you trust him? Will you take all of your life all of the parts of your life, and simply rest upon Him. Will you? 
Even with all of the confusion, even with all the, the, the expectations that are not being met, even with all of that, will you just simply trust? And the servants say that. Not asking much. When we, when we say to you, me, the pastor or the leaders of the church, when we call upon you and say, trust in Jesus... Let me tell you, we're not asking you to do anything hard. You know why I can say that? And I hope you're honest with yourselves this morning, like I've been with myself this week in preparing. We're not asking you to do anything extraordinary when we ask you to trust Jesus Christ with your life. You know why? Because every one of you, from the littlest child to the oldest person in the room, you're already trusting something. You already have expectation. You're already trust. Something is already functioning within your life that is saying to you that leprosy will be okay. I don't know what it is. I know what it is for me, and I'm not going to tell you because it's embarrassing. But maybe it's money, maybe it's power, maybe it's prestige, maybe it's looks, maybe it's education, maybe it's reformed theology. Oh, I've got this theology, I've got all this theology now, look, I'm, I'm okay now. All of us are trusting something. Every single human being is functionally trusting someone to cure their leprosy. Naaman's expectation was, I've come with all this power, with all this money, with all my army. I could snuff this prophet out in a second. In fact, next week you're going to find out what happened when they did try to come snuff out the prophet. (laughs) That's another great story. I'm expecting that he will come out and wave. I'm expecting he will come do for me. I'm expecting he'll wave his hand and he'll cha- do some enchantment in his... And Because why? Because I deserve it. I have brought my money. I have brought my power. I have this letter. And he waves the letter. <laughs> it's almost funny. Don't you get the humor? He's trusting something. Don't we do that? Don't we go to God and say, oh, you know, by the way, I've really prayed. I've prayed three days in a row. I read my Bible for 15 minutes this week. Look. I mean, how many things do we roll out there, folks? We're trusting something. Something is our functional, whatever you want to call it. What are you trusting? Ask yourself. And then deal with that thing. Because if you get to the bottom of that, that's where the Christian life actually catches fire and it becomes something that's wonderful and incomparable when it comes to other religions. No religion will go down into the deepest part of your heart and, and wrap its arms around you and say, it's okay. Throw that thing away. It's just an idol. It's just junk. It's just a letter. It's just money. It's just an incantation. Throw it away. And rest on me. Put your trust in me. 
go dip in this muddy pool. Why? Because I say. (laughs) You see, the power's with me. If I say the muddy river will cure you, it will. You don't need uh, Adan, Abana, and Far Part. You don't need these beautiful, you don't need the clean, clear, crisp. You don't need the perfect. You need me. And you know, Naaman, I don't know. I mean, we could talk about the theology of this, but I think faith is both, listen carefully, folks, faith is both active and passive. Faith is passive in that it just rests and receives what another has done for you on your behalf. Yes, that's what the gospel is. But let me tell you, folks, if you don't step out of the boat, if you don't step out of the chariot and walk down to that water and get in it, if you don't actively put your hope and dreams and life in God's hands, let the chips fall where they may. The Apostle Paul said, whether I live or whether I die, it doesn't matter anymore. He takes the extremes of human existence. He said, it doesn't really matter whether I live or die. He said, for me to die is even better than living, but living's got some benefits. You need me, so I'm going to stay. I mean... This is a mind. This is a mind that understands God. I've got Him so everything else makes sense. And somehow, Naaman got it. He listened to his servants. He goes down. And what happens is actually gets healed by that muddy water. Verse 15 and 17, he says, There's no no God on all the earth, but as... In Israel, and he even presses a gift onto Elisha, and Elisha says no, and he urges him, and he says no, I won't take a penny from you. And look at what happens. Now this is crucial. Look what he says after he tries to get him to take the gift, and he won't take it. Elisha, then Naaman, his heart is so changed. He said, "Well, in that case, let me have two mule loads of dirt." Just the dirt of God's land. Let me have that to take back with me so that wherever I am, I have this soil. See, in those days, people were more connected to the material world than we are. We're all just dreaming of heaven and streets of gold instead of thinking about the earth. But he says, no, give me some earth. I don't know what he was going to do with it. Maybe he was going to spread it out in his, in his home, his, his personal shrine at home, his altar, and, and do sacrifices there. I don't know what he was going to do with it. But nevertheless, he took the dirt back with him. And then he says, May the Lord pardon your servant, verse 18, when I go into my master's house and we pray to Rimmon. You see, he realizes what I've told you all and what I hope you remember, that Faith is going to put you in tension. Naaman understands he's got to go back and he's going to have to, you know, his king was probably an older guy and he's having to hold him on his arm and they go into this this pagan temple of Rimmon. And he said, please forgive your servant. He understood the tension. He understood what it was going to be to live in the world like we live in today. Faithfully being present in the world. That's a challenge for all of us. How do you be faithful in the world without compromising your beliefs? You know, Tim Keller 
Dr. Keller says, tolerance is not, listen carefully, this is magnificent, tolerance is not abandoning or compromising your beliefs. Tolerance is not abandoning or compromising your beliefs. Tolerance is about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. It's brilliant. Naaman could have wrote that because when confronted with the either or, which is how we like to divide everything, black and white, either or, you know what Naaman chose? What did he choose? Both. He said, I will. I will not give sacrifice. I won't worship any other God. This is my God. But... I know I'm going to have to live in this world and I'm going to have to serve my master, serve the king of Syria. He chooses both. He said, I will live faithfully present in the temple of Rimen even though I'm a worshiper of God. So he's choosing both to be a faithful follower of Jesus and the king of Israel God of heaven and earth, and to serve honorably uh, his master. How do you do that? See, we're called, folks, to engage. We cannot retreat. And sadly, there have always been groups of Christians that feel like the way is to hunker down, go go into a monastery, go into an ascetic life, uh, go out into the hill country, get off the grid. Now today, you, you see people are getting off the grid. That's the answer. Grow your own food. Make sure you stockpile plenty of guns because, you know, the zombie apocalypse is coming. Let's get all, let's hunker and bunker down. Let's take control of the government. Let's do whatever we have to do because we have to preserve ourselves. And these stories just don't ever point us in that direction. Where do they point us? Let me ask you, where? Every story like this one points us to the muddy river of Jordan. Why? Because at Jesus' baptism, he stepped into the muddy, tepid, lethargic, the leakage from this lake. And who had been in that river? not only before him and after him, but probably with him, who was also stepping into that river? A whole crowd of sinful people like you and I, sinners. And Jesus comes to that same river with all those sinners, and he steps down into the water, and John the Baptist says, no, no, this can't be. And Jesus said, let it be so. For it is incumbent upon us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, the only way, (laughs) the only way your leprosy, my leprosy is ever going to get cured is not by water, right? Water is not going to wash away leprosy. Jesus' blood has to do that. And when he stepped into that muddy water, He was saying, He was saying to you and me, me, the God of the universe, for you. I'll step into this water. 
I will take all that filth on me. And all I'm asking, all I'm asking is that you'll trust me. Will you? Will you trust me with all the junk in your life, all the leprosy? What else are you going to do with it? That's the question. On the cross, He took it for us. And I pray that that You will. Let's pray. Father, thanks uh, for Your goodness and for Jesus' baptism in that same muddy water that Naaman, Naaman stepped into, that the cure for our ills, every one of them, from the greatest to the smallest, are in that water, the water of Jordan, where Jesus stood. It's not the properties of that water, Father, but the presence of your Son there. Please, we pray. There are many, many here today who need your healing, who need your help, who need your embrace. And we pray that you will be present with us. And come what may, we will trust you. We promise that our faith will be active and lay hold on you. And we will trust you. Amen.